We're starting a new series today. We like to teach in series, and this series is called Sons and Daughters. And before we dive into what it is, I wanted to kind of explain why it's happened. Um, We believe here at St. Peter's that God is a speaking God. God is not mute. Um, We're quite often deaf, uh, but God is not mute, and God speaks. And we believe that creation came about because God spoke that when God speaks things, life comes and things change because God's word is powerful. Now, obviously, we have his written word, which is authoritative, uh, the Bible, which we, we study every time that we gather together. But there's also the spoken word of God here and now. And we want to be attentive to God's voice because we believe that it brings life wherever it comes. And a few times over the last couple of months, as we've worshipped together in different ways and at different times, people have said things like, I just feel like God wants to remind us that we're his sons and daughters. And these are people who are unconnected in many ways. This isn't a a theme that we were trying to work through, but it piqued my attention because it felt like God said it and said it and said it again. And that thought, hang on a minute, this is something that we need to consider. And we want to respond always to God's prophetic leading. So we're doing this series over the next few weeks called Sons and Daughters around what it is to be God's son or his daughter, about adoption, this theme that we will cover today. But as we begin it, It might sound nice, right, to be God's son or his daughter. That's nice. You know, I'm in a family now. I get to hold God's hand and walk through life. And that's brilliant in itself. But I think it's got much bigger consequences than that. We all know that if you get something wrong or even just slightly wrong in the foundation of your life, what's built on top of it is going to be compromised because of that. You might have seen those pictures online of like the foundations going wrong in a house and then it all being higgledy-piggledy and falling over, right? One brick out of place, one thing falls and everything starts to suffer. And I think this theme of adoption, this identity-forming theme of being a son or a daughter is that important. It's like the foundation level of trying to build a life with God. So if we get this bit right, everything that goes on top of it will be in a sure position, exactly where it needs to be, fitting together perfectly. But where we get this wrong, things can start to go awry one way or another. Now we all get things wrong. I'm not saying you've got to get it all perfect before you carry on. God's gracious and he works through our fallen understandings. But even a little tweak in this for you as we go through this might have massive consequences. As we begin, I want to ask you not to share with anybody else, but just to answer in your own minds, who is God to you? Now, what I mean by that is, is God, what's the first word you would say of what God is to you? Is it Lord, say? Now, you might have an idea already. Some of that came to mind for me were some people would say king, some would say lord. Some people might see God a little bit like a, a boss, if they're like, someone they give account to, a manager, someone that oversees them and makes sure they're doing the right thing. Is God heavy-handed? Because I think this is kind of what it all comes down to. God is lord and king and majesty, and God is all of those wonderful things. But foundationally, God is father. Jesus gave us this prayer, didn't he? The the Lord's Prayer. I don't actually think we should call it the Lord's Prayer because it didn't belong to Jesus. Bill Johnson makes the point that because it involves an admission of sin, it's not really the Lord's Prayer because Jesus never sinned. It's the disciples' prayer. But anyway, the prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples says, Our Father. 
And nowhere else in the rest of the prayer does it address God as anything. It doesn't say our Father on line one and then our Lord in line three. It's only our Father. And that's not to say, of course, that God isn't Lord and Judge and King and Redeemer. He is. But when Jesus was giving his followers this model prayer, this way of praying, he didn't choose to introduce God as anything other than Father. The only reference to God is that. Because it's so foundational to who God is. And it sets the scene for a relationship with God. We don't believe that we're kind of robotic in our relationship with God. We believe that God is a person, that he wants to relate to us, that he wants to tell us things and speak to us. And he wants to come and be involved in our life. He wants to have an intimate relationship, like the best father and the best son or daughter. This sets the scene for our understanding of faith because it's not primarily transactional. You know, you give me your sin and I'll give you my righteousness, though that's thrown in. Primarily, this is about a relationship with God. And relationships don't happen between bosses and subjects or superiors and inferiors. Relationships happen best through fathers and sons or daughters. Jesus is setting the scene, even in that, to say, I want you to know this God who I call Father as your Father. And when we say that God's Father, we're not just saying he's any Father, right? You know, your experience of a dad might be really good, really bad, and probably somewhere in the middle. We're not saying he's like that. We're saying he's the perfect Father. Faithful and protective and consistent and dependable and reliable gracious and loving and merciful and kind always and forevermore god isn't just any father he's the perfect father and that really goes a long way to saying what difference i think understanding god in this way even a degree more accurately than you do already could have in your life that goes so far to say what difference i hope this series has The late pastor Tim Keller puts it like this. The only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. When you understand that you're a child of God, everything changes. You can wake your heavenly father up at 3 in the morning for a glass of water, no questions asked. When you understand that God is a perfect father and you're his son or his daughter, you know that you can't lose your place in the family. You can't, you don't have to achieve in order to keep your place around the table. You don't have to perform to gain attention. You don't have to outrank another sibling in order to be the favored one who gets the priority seat. You don't have to jockey with anybody else for position. You don't have to provide anything in order to be valuable. When you understand that God is a perfect father, everything changes because you can just be a son. You can just be a daughter and you can just sit there and enjoy the fact that you've got a perfect heavenly father and bask in the reflection of his goodness and his glory. When God is father first and foremost, you know that you have a secure place in his family. You can depend on his loving care of you his provision for you, his protection of you. You can know that he sees you and he delights in you. And he's got a plan before you've done anything 
to see his image come out more and more and more in your life. And along the way, as you journey with him in this intimate relationship, he wants to work with you to see everything made new in the world. He's got a role that you can fulfill as his son or his daughter. As heaven is proclaimed and the kingdom of heaven is stepped into all over the world, including here in Bury. I know someone who had a realization, I suppose, when they were in their 20s of something quite profound. Every Saturday afternoon, the activity that they would get invited to do by their dad was to go and wash the car together. That typical kind of good weather, I suppose, activity. So every Saturday afternoon, they would go out and they'd get the warm water ready and the sponges and the chamois leathers and whatever else they had. They'd put the soap in and they'd get it ready and they'd start to wash the car and dad would do some and they would do some. This was when they were six, seven, eight. And every Saturday, this would happen without fail. Do you want to go and wash the car again? Yeah, yeah, great. And off we go. And it was only years later that my friend realized that he was really contributing very little to the car washing experience, right? He couldn't reach up to the top because he was little and he was probably getting stones in the um, sponge and scratching the car. He wasn't really doing it very well. But his dad didn't really care about his performance in the car washing stakes. He just wanted the time to be with his son. And that's a little bit, that's a small microcosm, of course, of how God sees it with you. He doesn't need you to be able to do everything to solve all the world's problems. He just sometimes wants the chance to sit with you, to talk with you, to alleviate some of your fears, to calm some of your nerves, to give you a place in his purposes. Before you do anything for God, he just wants to be with you. And if he has to pretend like you're washing the car in order to bring that about, he'll happily do it. Because it's much more about who you are. It's much more about the, the relationship that you have than anything that you could give to God. We're going to read from Ephesians chapter 1, a passage written by the Apostle Paul, which will come up on the screen if you want to follow it there. In the original language, I won't do it like this, but this is all written as one long sentence. It's like this breathless start to this amazing book where Paul is writing, overflowing, if you like, with goodness and thanks for who God is and for what he's done. Ephesians 1, beginning at verse 3, says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. 
adoption then? What is it? The first thing we need to say, and I've kind of hinted at it already as a bit of a primer as we talk about this, is please don't read your experience of adoption or your experience of fatherhood or parenting or family into the text. Don't make your experience the one that Paul is talking about. Of course, we've all had an understanding of this, good or bad, patchy or consistent, God-glorifying or anything but... The challenge for us is to read the text into our lives, not our lives into the text. I know that talking about family is emotive because they can be the places where we receive the richest blessing, but often also the most pain. But part of why I think God wants to put his finger on this for us through this series is to solve some of that. To say, here's what it should have been. Here's what I hoped it would be. Here's what I was longing for you to experience. And I'm sorry that you didn't. But come be grafted into my family and experience more of that than you ever did in your own. Maybe he wants to say to you, look, you experienced so many great things. And where they were great, they pointed to me and pointed to this. So use that as a springboard from your life into adoption under me. We will have seen less than good examples of adoption, of fatherhood, of family in our own experience. But God's way is best. And people not doing things God's way doesn't reflect on God, it reflects on them. So where you've experienced anything less than God's perfection, i.e. living in the world today, that's not an indictment on God, but on the fallenness of the world and on people who don't want to follow him. Come to him And receive the perfect version, the one that should always have been. And where that's painful and difficult, turn to one another and turn to God ultimately. And say, God, this hurts, but please, would you bring your healing? Adoption, then, is a significant theological theme, especially in the Apostle Paul. Lots of the passages that we'll look at over this series are from Paul, because he's the one that talks about it again and again and again. Biblically, the word adoption in Greek is hyothesia. That's a compound word, two words shoved together. And it means placing as a son. Placing as a son. Biblically, this is always about what God has done for people. Though, as we'll see, it does draw on a concept of adoption that was in society at the time. Adoption is to be placed as a son or a daughter. It changes your legal standing before God. Because before adoption, you were estranged from God. You were orphaned, if you like. And after adoption, you are legally under him. Your position has changed. That means that your rights change. Your inheritance changes. You have exactly the same rights as biological children. You are put on equal footing. In adoption, everything that God has is deposited into your bank account, if you like. Everything that God is becomes yours because you share the family line. Adoption is irrevocable. It can't be overturned. It can't be undone. It's secure and it's steadfast. We become God's and God becomes ours. You cannot be unmade a son or a daughter of God because we remember what happens to prodigal kids that run away from home, don't we? 
God comes out onto the horizon and looks for them and says, you're still my son. Come and be restored into the family, not made a son again, because you always were. But be restored into the family. Adoption is a, a legal change. You're now no longer your own or somebody else's. You belong to God. And that brings with it rights and privileges and benefits beyond measure. Culturally, at the time, adoption was regularly practiced by the influential and the elites in the Greek world. Roman emperors, for instance, would often adopt someone into their family in order for that person to be their heir or their successor. Some of the best-known emperors that we have gained their status by adoption. Augustus, Tiberius, Claudius, Nero, Marcus Aurelius... Julius Caesar adopted his great-nephew Octavius, who succeeded him as Caesar Augustus. Culturally, this was done in order to create the right kind of family line, you might say. I want that person to be my successor because they're strong and capable, and they're going to take everything that I've been doing on in the best way. So Paul uses a concept that was already there in society to describe what God has done for us. He uses something that they already knew as a way of describing what God does. Because he says, I want you to be my heir. I want you to have my inheritance. I'm not doing this to make me look good. I'm not doing this because I am influential and powerful. I'm doing this for your benefit, that you get to be grafted into my family. Adoption changes your legal standing. It gives you everything that any other child has, biological or otherwise. It was practiced for, for different motives, but we know in God the motives are pure. So what do we see then from Ephesians 1, this passage that we've read, about God's adoption of us, or, if you're not a Christian here today, God's offer of adoption to you? The first thing that we see is that adoption is in love. Verse 4 of what we read says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. Adoption is one of the purest expressions of the love of God for you. In adoption, we see the love of God made big, put on clear display. God does not offer to adopt out of manipulation or coercion. He doesn't offer to adopt to make his family look great or to increase his assets, if you like. God offers to adopt, and he adopts us as sons or daughters out of pure and full and magnificent love. God's not doing it to gain a more impressive heir. He adopts us because he loves us. Before we've done anything for him, before we've tried to, to live up to the adoption that we've received, as we'll come to later in the series, God loves you and adopts you to sonship or daughtership in Jesus. He offers us the chance to be adopted, to not be an orphan anymore spiritually speaking. He wants us to accept it, but he doesn't force it on us because that wouldn't be loving, would it? Then we've got no choice in the matter. He puts it on the table like a gift and says, please receive it. Please open it up. Explore it. Live into it. 
but because it's in love, I leave the choice with you. God loves you infinitely and purely and eternally. And adoption is one of those places where we see it put on display. We see the implications of God's love to put this on the table for us. The first thing we see then is that God's adoption is always in love. Secondly, adoption is out of desire. Verse 5 says that this is in accordance with God's pleasure and will. God wanted to adopt us. It was his will. He wasn't forced to do it. No one tied his hands and says, well, you better do this. God wanted to do this. To be clear, God doesn't have to save us. We've wandered away in sin and done what God didn't want us to do. He doesn't have to come and find us. He doesn't have to adopt us back. He wants to. He didn't need to save us to amass a family, to make himself look great, to fulfill some unmet need in himself. God is perfect. And he's completely satisfied in the relations of the Trinity. God didn't need to save us. He wanted to. This is God's will. And it even goes a step beyond that. This is his pleasure. God doesn't do this begrudgingly. Oh, I suppose I should try and give them a chance to come back to me. I suppose that a loving God would probably give them a chance again, wouldn't he? God is desperate to do this for us out of his pleasure. It's done with delight, with a smile on his face. To say, I long for you to know what it's like to be my son or my daughter again. I long for you to sit around my table with me. For us just to to bask in each other's presence before we ever do anything. I long for us to, to wash the car again, even though you contribute nothing to the effective cleaning of this car. God wants to adopt you and he gets pleasure from it. Not because it does anything for him. He doesn't get satisfaction in that sense of any unmet need he doesn't need you to say yes to him in order to receive joy but he loves adopting sons and daughters increasing his family out of the perfect love that we've already spoken of adoption is out of God's desire it's in accordance with his pleasure and his will And finally, adoption is freely given in Christ. Verse 6 says, To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. We are offered adoption freely. It's a gift that is given to us, which we don't repay the worth of out of compulsion All we can do is to receive it, to open it up, and to live into it. The Christian word for this, as was said in that verse, is grace. Grace is an undeserved gift, unmerited favor, unearnable reward for us. This is a gift of God, a grace of God, which we do nothing to earn or be worthy of. It's a gift, and a gift is given to all of us. And it's our choice whether we receive it. It's a free gift for us. We don't need to polish ourselves up or make ourselves look better before God before we can receive it. We don't need to act like we're worth it before we can accept it. It's a gift given to anybody who in any condition, at any time and in any place 
can open this up and say, I want to be God's child. I'm an orphan spiritually, off on my own, trying to cut my own path and failing miserably. I want to be a son or a daughter of the Almighty King, a son or a daughter of the perfect Father, and you receive it freely. Though obviously free to us means that the cost was borne by someone else. And Paul goes on to make clear that this cost Jesus everything. For the redemption, the forgiveness of sin which adoption needs was brought about by Jesus' blood poured out on the cross. In spite of that huge, enormous cost, the life of Jesus, God's only son. It was his pleasure and will to adopt us. Even though he knew it would cost him his son, it was his pleasure and his will to do that in order to be reconciled with you, to put that on the table as a gift that you can receive. Hebrews says that Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. He went through it because there was something joyful on the other side. And the thing that was joyful on the other side was the chance to adopt you as a son or a daughter. That you could call his father your father. That you could be a sibling with Christ. Included in the family once and for all. This is all grace. And through the grace, we're given an unshakable standing as a child of God. And when we're a child of God, that becomes the most significant thing about us. That lays the foundation, if you like, for our identity. We don't need to to do anything to make ourselves look great because the greatest thing about us is that we're a son or a daughter of God Almighty. We don't have to create an identity in order to impress other people. We say, I received this sonship. I received this daughtership as a free gift of God, and now it's changed everything in me. When you're adopted, you receive your identity in Christ. You don't have to achieve it by other means. You find out who you are in relationship with him because he made you and he made everything. And he crafted you for a purpose. And he's got things that are for you and you alone to do. You find out who you are in relationship with God. When you're the son, the daughter, and he's the perfect father, you don't have to put it together yourself. Construct an identity to fit the world or to impress somebody else. You receive it as a gift from God. You are God's and he is yours. That all to say that being a son or daughter of God is the greatest thing that you could ever be. Being a son or daughter, being adopted into God's family with all the standing and the inheritance and the heirship that that brings, which will come too soon, is the greatest gift that you could ever be given. And I think the reason that God's been knocking on the door to us with this for a little while and the reason we're opening this up for a series now is because I want to urge you to receive that gift today if you've never done it before. And if you have, to just spend a moment marveling at the fact that you have been given the rights of a son or a daughter of God. That you can call him father. Not as some vain hope 
or some vague idea that maybe one day, sometime, he'll treat me like a father treats a son or a daughter. No, no, no. In the sure and certain hope that at all times and in all ways, he sees you as his son or his daughter with the care, with the love, with the provision, the protection, and everything else that that brings with it. To know that you know, that you know, that you know, that you are a son or a daughter of God. Not in your head as an idea, but in your heart as a lived reality. That will change everything. And maybe that involves giving up some false ideas where God is primarily a a boss that needs you to do lots or a manager who's over your shoulder saying behave get it right come on maybe God's been a harsh taskmaster to you God comes to us and says let me be your dad I'm the perfect dad and you can be my son my daughter I urge you to receive this gift today to marvel in this gift if you've received it already And through this series, to throw yourself in, to open it up and to explore what it means. Because there's so many riches to be understood and lived into if we understand this fully. And having explored it through this series, the invitation is to live like a son or a daughter for the rest of your life. Romans 8 talks about the fact that the whole creation is waiting for the sons of God. The world is waiting for people who understand that they're sons and daughters of God to live like they're sons and daughters of God, not with an arrogance, but with a humility to say, I received this freely, but now I've got it. I get rights. I get privileges. I can talk to to dad and get him to change things here on earth. We can see the kingdom come in Barry as in heaven. We can respond in love to, to hatred and persecution. We can pray big, bold prayers because we know that dad wants to to meet them and exceed them. The whole creation is waiting for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. Barry is waiting for sons and daughters of God to live like that's true. Because it is. So today we're just opening up the gift, if you like. There's so much more to explore and I encourage you to maybe reread the passages that we're looking at on a Sunday again through the week to listen to the talks again when they go up online, to let this be counselling, if you like, surgery for where we've got things wrong in our understanding of God, to set the foundations again, that we might each become a son or daughter of God, even more fully than we are already, that we might each see and live the consequences of this amazing offer. Being a son or daughter of God is the greatest thing that you could ever be. Being adopted into his family is the greatest gift you could ever receive. And Jesus gives it to you freely, though it cost him everything. He gives it to you out of love, not coercion. And he gives it to you delighting in the fact that you might open it up and live its consequences here and now. People of St. Peter's, through this series, even today, receive this gift. Become a son or daughter of the King. And I promise you that everything will change with it.